Sisters, listen closely. Finding out he's the one can sometimes feel like traveling through a desert of uncertainty. I mean, every time you feel like you've reached an oasis, it ends up being a mirage. As your resident sister and friend, here are five common red flags that you need to steer clear away from. First up, if he's asking for your phone number straight off the bat, but not your dad's, well, that's a major red flag waving in your face. Next, if he's hitting you up with texts and calls late at night, you better believe he's not serious and chances are he won't respect your boundaries. Watch out for those put down disguised as sarcastic banters. You know, the ones that make you the butt of the joke. It's time to show him the door. And oh, if he's more interested in hearing himself talk than listening to what you have to say, girl, that's a sign you need to run in the opposite direction. And let's not forget the classic line, my ex was crazy. Yeah, right. If he's mouth-mouthing his ex left and right, chances are he's the one with the issues. And those are just the obvious red flags. Let's help you uncover what's really hiding underneath the surface with Vibe Check, the ultimate prompt card game for meaningful connections. Crafted with deep respect for Islamic traditions, Vitech goes beyond the surface, allowing you to discover the essence of your potential life partner's faith, character, and aspirations. With eight thoughtfully crafted categories and 135 thought-provoking questions, Vitech ensures a comprehensive understanding of your potential spouse, from values and ambitions to personal quirks and preferences. I mean, skip the surface-level discussions and dive straight into what truly matters. Visit our website, www.thedigitalstory.com now and take the first step towards finding your righteous partner. Your journey to marital bliss begins here. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. It is your sister and friend, Adar, and you're listening to the Digital Sisterhood Podcast. So I'm really, 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 really excited. And I feel like I say this all the time, but I'm very excited about this week's guest. It's funny because I I had met her. <laughs> I met her in such an interesting way. Actually, I met her on the internet when uh, it was the start of the pandemic. I don't, know if you guys, I don't know if everybody remembers. In the start of the pandemic, Clubhouse was a huge app that everybody was on to fill their time. And I remember when I came on that app, I saw this girl who had his like welcome room and it was like a welcome room for Muslims. And so she was inviting Muslims onto the app. And I was like, so shocked. Cause I remember entering the app thinking, who is this person? <laughs> What's going on in this room? And I remember subhanAllah, she was inviting sisters and she was like, you know, introducing uh, people to the app and the Muslim community. And she was organizing dialogue and conversation. And she had this really soft voice. And she seemed like such a lovely person, to be honest. Even just hearing her voice, you just felt like, I don't explain it. You felt like you kind of belonged. I think Alex had that talent. I had never personally met Alex. She had heard about TDS and she was actually doing a program for Muslims to kind of network and just really providing that space for us to come together and I guess make a difference. I remember the first day, I will never forget, their first lesson was about amana, about trust. I had never joined a program like that in my life where 
she was inspiring and instilling the principles, you know, of our religion that can obviously be applied everywhere. And I just thought that, oh my God, who is this person? <laughs> who is Alex? I was just, I was just dumbfounded because I just thought she was just like, there's a few things I knew about Alex, right? What I did know about her was that she, you know, was a software engineer and she loves traveling the world. And, you know, Alex never stayed in one place. Like one day I would call her, she'd be living in a cave in Greece or she'd be in between two mountains in Spain. And like, that was Alex. Alex was like this person living this like, magnificent life and she seemed you know obviously very successful and very independent i mean she was living my my dream essentially and i just i i found her so interesting but the thing about alex is that she was extremely mysterious she's just so mysterious like alex would only tell you just what you need to know like a need to know basis like obviously me being the most nosiest person in the world I just, I could tell there was this like reservation with her and that there was obviously a lot more to Alex than what I was seeing. I'm honestly her biggest fan. I'm not even gonna lie to you. I'm not gonna hold you back. This, I'm her biggest fan. Not because of all the success that she's done and the way that she lives and the way that she travels, but like who she is as a person is truly remarkable. And this story blew my socks off. And I'm super excited to introduce you to Alex and her story. And so without further ado, the story goes. The first place that I knew um, was this one bedroom apartment in Atlanta, Georgia. And it was me, my older sister, my two parents, and one set of grandparents. And we were all like living together in this one bedroom. Um, I think like I stayed in my mom and dad's room. My sister was in the living room with my grandparents. And that's kind of like the origin, origin story. Um, my parents are both uh, immigrants from China and they were both pursuing their degrees in, in the States, uh, uh, in Georgia. And I, and I guess like in the late 80s, my grandparents came over kind of like before my sister was born in preparation to help care for the baby. You know, like parents go out during the day studying, working, and grandparents at home. That was kind of the family life. But the first place that I really remember, like the first home that I can actually kind of remember is our house in Minnesota. So a few years after I was born, my dad got a job after my parents graduated in Minnesota. And it was a big move. But I remember, I think it was a very hopeful time. There are a lot of photographs of me and my sister. There's this one photograph where we're like laying rocks outside the house. I don't know what that thing is called, but you know how in front of houses sometimes there's like this, you'll have rocks or whatever else. And when I think back to that time or when I look at kind of videos and, and photographs from that time, I think it just seems like it was very hopeful. Alex was really this mischievous, smiley kid who loved her mom so, 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 so much. So much so on the first day of school, Alex was that kid, you know, that kid sobbing and begging her mom not to leave her here. You know, Alex came from a really loving home, at least most of the time. As the years progressed, you know, where I can actually start to have memories 
it felt like I had sort of like two lives. Yeah. There was like my my primary life, which was me, my mom, my older sister, you know, in our house in in the suburbs. And we were like, I don't even know if it's called suburbs, like really out in the boondocks. It's like <laughs> a, a really small town in um, outside of Minneapolis. And it was very, very happy. It was very joyful. We just had like our routines. A lot of time I, I took the bus to school every day, came home. Sometimes I was the first one home. You know, I'd watch TV, maybe do homework. Um, and then my, when my mom came home, she was working at a state university, like this, this rural university. It was like a two-hour drive from our house, and, and she drove two hours each way, you know, to get to this job. But um, she'd always be home for dinner and, and make us dinner, and we had, like, our seats at the table. Me and my sister were always, you know, kind of, like, competing for her attention. And mm. um, after dinner, we would kind of sometimes sit and watch TV, and it was just very, it was very happy, and I felt like it was, this was my life. And then it felt like there emerged this other life, which was when my dad was home. Mm. And I don't know if my dad was always angry, <laughs> but my primary perception of him from my childhood is, is just him being very angry. And I didn't really understand why at the time. Um, when my parents started fighting, I kind of like understood that it was about money, and I feel like you know, it was probably about a lot else. But I didn't really understand, you know, what that meant or, or what the issue was, or why he was unhappy, or why they were fighting. And I think now, when I think of my father, I think of him as a man who had like a vision for what his life would be like and it didn't really turn out that way and so I understand him a little bit better but at the time I just perceived his presence as like something very stifling um you know our house which was usually so full of laughter whenever he was home it was like walking on eggshells like I, I just felt like everyone was afraid to misstep like anything could set him off like my sister might get a bad grade at school or one time I burned the toast and he would just like fly off the handle and then him and my mom would fight and it was just really unhappy, but it was also rare. Like most of the time he wasn't there and I felt like, you know, my life was very, was very warm and loving. What, what is your, um, what is your mom like? personality-wise like was she a silly or was she like uh, yeah or was she like the... really silly <laughs> <laughs> really silly for sure always joking yeah. oh my gosh we had so many jokes like we were just like oh, it was just it was very loving very laughter a lot of laughter like one of the other things I guess two other things that I feel like my mom really instilled in me or that I really understood about her was travel. She loved to travel. She was always like thinking about, you know, how can I see the world? And, you know, we didn't like splurge on stuff, but we would always like try to make, be able to, you know, go on road trips and like see things and, and explore. And, and I really appreciate that. And education, the other big one, um, by the time I was in middle school, uh, my mom had, you know, helped me enroll in a private middle school. 
it's like this elite private middle school in in Minneapolis, and it is exactly how you would imagine it to be. <laughs> um, it was really different. I think it was the first time I probably perceived that perceived like socioeconomic status because mm. it was just like I'd never I'd never been around people who are so wealthy. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if I'd ever been around people who are even moderately wealthy, mm. and it was that's when I first started to perceive. But it was it was it took a while for me to to have those feelings. I think initially I was I was really excited. I was really proud. You know, it, it felt like a big deal to to go to the school. I was one of the few kids who were there on financial aid. So you know, every like every time they were taking photos for a brochure or had some kind of donor meeting, no. they would always roll. Yeah, no. they would always roll us out. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't yep, have to take pictures was, of you guys. Yeah, exactly. Bring yeah. the kids was, out with the financial aid. We need their success stories. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that was definitely a thing. Oh, goodness. Um, but alhamdulillah, uh, there's a lot of things that would have gone very differently in my life if, if I hadn't enrolled in that school at that time. In the seventh grade, Alex's mother decides to finally separate from their father. She decides to find an apartment, sign a lease, and move her daughters in. This news made Alex very, very happy. Because what that meant was she no longer had to live these two separate lives. She could finally choose a life that she always wanted. The life where she saw her mother happy and joyous and silly and content. Finally, everything was coming together. Until one day, Alex gets a phone call that her mother had collapsed playing volleyball. She had a brain aneurysm. SubhanAllah. Um, it was really, really, really sudden. Um, it was really unexpected. You know, one day there was she was there. One day she was there, and the next day she was gone. And I just, yeah, it was it was very hard to process. Um, I can't even I can't just can't even describe to you what what it was like. Everything changed. It's like I lost my mom, I lost my best friend, but I also lost my life. Like I told you, my life. My early childhood, alhamdulillah, like when I think about it, was really happy. There were a lot of sad and dark moments, you know, moments when my parents were fighting and it, it was really, really intense. But it was joyful in a way that I know is rare or maybe not rare, but, but very precious. But when my mom died, I lost that. Shortly after her death, my dad moved my sister and I to an apartment in Minneapolis uh, because, you know, as I mentioned, we were going, uh, both attending private school by that time, and before my mom would drive me or, you know, we'd find carpool, but it, would, it just wasn't manageable when she wasn't around, so we had to move closer where we could take the bus. And my life in that apartment that I shared with my sister and very occasionally my dad when he was in town was so hard. Um... During that time, like right after her death, I started having really, a really hard time sleeping. So before she died, I also had a hard time sleeping. Before my mom died, 
literally up until the day she died, I often would like sleep in her bed. You know, my mom up until through high school shared a bed with her sister and her grandma and same with my grandma. I think for them it was kind of normal um, uh, based on the culture and and how they grew up. But for me, it was because I, I just had a really hard time falling asleep. I was really scared of sleep and it, I just love my mom too. So from a young age, I had you know this habit of if I couldn't fall asleep, I would run across the hall to her room, and sometimes she'd be awake and she'd be like, "Yeah, come on!" And yeah. <laughs> sometimes she'd be asleep and she would kind of like roll over, uh, turn over the bed covers, and I'd crawl into bed with her. And I remember some nights we would just be like giggling. <laughs> For hours. It was like a sleepover. It was like a party. We would just be giggling for hours. And then it'd be like 1 or 2 a.m. And my mom would remember that she's the adult. And she'd be like, oh, okay, okay, we have to go to sleep. (laughs) You have school tomorrow. (laughs) But that was kind of my habit. And so after she died, I not only had a really hard time falling asleep because, you know, I I no longer had this comfort, but I had what... I, at the time, experienced as or or understood as, like, just being really scared of the dark. That's mm. what I thought it was. Yeah. I thought I was just, like, had an intense fear of the dark because I would, you know, turn off my light, get ready to go to bed, and I would just, like, be really in terror and kind of be looking around and, like, you know, seeing shadows and, like, creeping along the floor and along the wall and I thought this was just like kind of like a fear that I hadn't yet grown out of yeah so I was living with my sister up until she left for college so when I was 14 by the end of my freshman year of high school my sister had gone to college and I was basically living in this apartment alone um my dad was there maybe like a couple weeks out of the year, quite infrequent. And it's hard to say, honestly, whether it was it was better or worse when he was there or away. When he was there, we really didn't get along. We had a really hard time communicating. I think it was also hard for me because when my mom was alive, we always did things in pairs as if when we were together, the yeah, four of us. Yeah. Like my sister and my dad are really tall and they like walk fast and they would always like whenever we go on hikes they'd like always walk ahead and my mom and I are short and we'd just like be trailing behind and like if we played Scrabble or card games it was always like those were our teams and I think after my mom died I felt very acutely that I was not in with my dad and my sister and it, it was kind of augmented or worsened by this feeling that I wasn't like I, I wasn't trying hard enough or I wasn't like something was wrong you know something that I heard a lot during that time was like what is wrong what is wrong with you um and not to say it wasn't I, I don't want to use the word deserved but you know I had a I, had, I think I had a short temper I, I I just I didn't communicate well with them so the weeks when my dad was there it, it was really hard but when he wasn't there I was alone and my kind of habit during that time, the thing that I remember most vividly is I would come home from school, 
we lived in this, you know, like mo like tower, um, concrete building, and I would take the elevator up to our unit and run down the hall and unlock my door, like slam the door behind me, run down um, to my bedroom, like turn on the lights, run down my bedroom, close my bedroom door, and I would just stay in there for the rest of the night. I would turn the TV on, the TV, there was like a small TV in my room. I would turn the volume up and just watch TV until I literally could not keep my eyes open anymore because I was so scared. Like, and it's hard to even name or say what, what I was afraid of. And I think now looking back, I better understand that maybe what I was seeing were symptoms of things to come. But at the time, it just felt like it was just fear. You know, I, I felt like I was seeing things. I felt like if I didn't stare at the TV, I would see something moving. And I didn't want to see what that would, was. And if I didn't, you know, have the sound, the volume up, I would start hearing whispers and I didn't, I didn't want to find out what they had to say. Because I was living alone during this time, one thing that I felt um, is I felt like I couldn't really talk to anyone and mm. I felt like I couldn't really share too much about my situation because I was always very afraid of like being put into somebody finding out and I have to like go to a home yeah, or this and that. They're going to be taken it away. Was like yeah. my, my situation wasn't good, but I just knew people and, and horror stories and I didn't want that. So I think I was also very, always like very protective and very private and to some extent like secretive about my life. Like people knew that my mom was dead and, and they knew my dad wasn't really around, but I don't think anyone kind of understood the extent to yeah. of, of what my situation was. But Subhanallah, I, that time, the, the goal, like my one goal <laughs> was graduating high school. Mm. Like I had it in my mind that if I can get through this, like it'll be okay, we'll figure it out. Like if I, if I can just get to this finish line, um, it will be okay. And I, I, re I would not have graduated high school if I didn't go to the school that I went to and, and have like the friends that I had and the teachers that I had, because I tell you, when I talk about this elite private school, our high school classes were like 120 people. Oh, like wow. So small, you know, yeah. like one on one attention with teachers. Every every grade had a dean who was kind of like responsible for for student affairs. And my dean, I just an angel. I told you, you know, I was having a hard time sleeping during that time yeah. and I never made it to school on time. Like zero I think zero percent wow. <laughs> on time and I was getting detentions like every week because you you get detention if you miss like three homeroom like your first you're you're supposed to check in but she would call me on my cell phone um by the time like she heard that I had missed my first period and she'd be like hey school started like are you coming yeah. if you're not gonna come I'm gonna come pick you up Aww. like yeah, it's like very just very, exactly. Like it just, I, I, if I hadn't had that and um, people like that and and I think my teachers too were very empathetic. I was a terrible student, um, just like straight C's and D's, couldn't turn in an assignment on time to save my life, but everybody was very empathetic. Um, I remember I had a lot of sit downs with teachers about like academic performance and about assignments, but people were 
I could tell that people were trying to help and they were very frustrated. And I remember one time with a chemistry teacher's like sophomore year, we were talking and I, I was being kind of maybe like a little bit rude. Um, you know, didn't want to be there, didn't want to hear this again. And she started crying oh, and no. I and I felt it very deeply. And I was like, it wasn't that I wasn't trying. <laughs> I think I was trying really, really hard. And part of me was very upset because I felt like, what you know, why can't I do better? Yeah. And and part of me too saw my sister and it and I'm like, you know, my sister, like her mom died too. Yeah. Why like why why can't I do it? Like she did it. I can do it too. And I think at some point, uh, like sophomore, junior year, I was having a lot of, you know, academic performance issues. Um, at some point, they had me see a like child psychologist mm. or child psychiatrist. And I, you know, for a couple of days or like for a couple of weeks uh, during some period, I would meet this person in our library and go through, you know, all these battery of tests and discussions with her, questions, etc. And that was the first time that I got diagnosed with ADHD. Um, and it was kind of a diagnosis that I resisted. It, for me, like, helped to explain some things, but on the other hand, I was still very much in this mindset of, like, if I just will myself to do better, I can do better. Yeah. Um, so I had this diagnosis, and, and they recommended medication, but I didn't end up taking medication um, during that time. You know, I didn't really talk to anyone about it. I just kind of, you know, made this decision for myself. I also wasn't on healthcare. I didn't have healthcare yeah. oh, <laughs> in no. high school. So I was just like, okay, you know, they got to do their thing. They feel a little bit more like comfortable on their end that they did what they needed to do. Like I'm I'm not gonna change what I'm doing. Yeah. Um I think also during that time, the instances when I was with my dad, which were really, you know, we didn't get along. And one thing that he would always do is, like, he could tell I was struggling. Like, I, I, you know, I wasn't going to school. My grades were terrible. Um, and he would always tell me stories, like, of his childhood. Mm -hmm. And he would tell me about growing up in Mao's China and his father being sent to a prison uh, labor camp and him having to do, you know, um, work in this factory when he was, like, 14. And he would tell me this, like... And I would always hate him. Oh, no. <laughs> like, as he, I would always hate him yeah. as he was telling me these stories. Yeah. Because it felt like, you know, like, I went through this. This is nothing. What you're experiencing is mm. nothing. Like, this is what I survived. Yeah. And even though while he was telling me these stories, I was just, like, so furious. They did reach me in a way. I did have this feeling of, why can't I do this? You know, this isn't the hardest thing in the world. And so I think that was kind of my mentality, so just to try to push through it. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tests us, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't just give you a test and tells you, figure it out. Rather, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he hands you a test, he also hands you with the tools to pass that test. Allah SWT also surrounds us with his mercy and his help. And they're all there if we just pay attention. They're there. Right? And so for Alex, the way that Allah SWT showed up for her and helped her was through her high school teachers 
and even from her high school best friend. I spent a lot of time with her family. Um, and, you know, her family is Muslim. They're from Pakistan. And it really influenced me. Um, I feel like in a lot of ways, you know, at least at least from then on, I, I was raised Muslim. Like, I was very much in this tradition of, you know, you come come home, say salams. Every time I went over, just, like, come, you know, give her grandma a kiss, Aww. go to the kitchen, get some food. <laughs> and her parents, you know, were always working. Um, they ran a catering business, which also meant that there was always food, food at the yes. house. Food, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, you know, it was just, it was, my, like, my family. Alex didn't have this, like, climactic Shahada story, right? What happened with Alex was she became close to a Muslim family. And the values and the principles of that family is something that Alex quickly adopted. And so when Alex was doing her Shahada, it didn't feel like she had found Islam. It was like Islam gave her the words of the belief that she already had in her heart. She felt like she had always been Muslim. I felt like this is this is my family. This is my religion. It felt very right. Um, and when I started, you know, being more serious and reading books and like everything that I read, I was like, this is explaining something that I've always known but never had the words for. That's how it felt. It didn't feel like I was discovering something new, but it felt like something that I had always believed and always known but couldn't express. And so it wasn't like this kind of moment of realization. It just felt like settling into this life that felt very right and appropriate. And I think since then, I've always, I've still had ebbs and flows of, you know, being more on my deen and, and being less so and being closer and versus being further away from the religion. But I would say ever since, you know, I was a sophomore in high school, felt like, I've never, I've never felt like a question about my faith. So Alex finally graduated high school and she was finally off to college. And college was so much of a different experience for her. Instead of just, you know, living in her dad's apartment by herself, college offered her a real communal space. I mean, like she had a roommate, she had people to talk to, and she could finally escape from the loneliness she's been feeling. She had this really transformative conversation with a friend, actually. Her roommate was telling her about some of the things that she struggled academically with and how the medication she was taking for AD had, like, transformed her life. And so Alice started to think to herself, maybe, maybe I'm wrong about this medication thing. Maybe there's good in it. You know, I mean, it worked for her roommate and she's saying such great things about it. Alex started to think about, you know, taking it. And so... Alice is like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to try it out. I'm going to try the ADD medication and see what happens. It was like a light switch went on. It was, it was literally like my brain turned on. I got straight A's wow. for the first time. For the first time since I was in sixth oh grade. Oh my God, you <laughs> suffered that long. 
Oh my God. <laughs> Not even straight A's, N-A. I got N-A. Oh no. <laughs> but I, 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 did, I did get straight A's, but I hadn't gotten an A, like even in art, in art class. I couldn't get an A because, oh like, I missed some assignment, you know? And so, like, I, when I started taking medication, it was literally, like, someone turned a light bulb on in my brain. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh, this is what I've been missing. <laughs> yeah, this it's is like, what it's It's like putting on glasses not... and finally seeing the leaves yes. on the tree. You're like, this is yeah, what I was missing? <gasps> it felt like that. It felt like that. Like, I had no idea oh my God. that it that's what it was and like like i was able to read you know like before i couldn't read from like the top of the page to the bottom of the page because i would just get lost and it was like so frustrating and it's like why are these simple things taking me so long why is it so hard for me to do this why is it so hard for me to listen and so that was really a light bulb movement when i started started taking medication for my add and i think that's the first time that i shifted my perception of kind of you know mental illness yeah. and mental health yeah. from this framework of like you can work through it yeah. it's yeah. you're not try you're not trying hard enough to like oh something was wrong yeah. when i started taking medication it was very clear to me like wow something was wrong subhanallah yeah. that's Oh, that's so that's so you know it's a little sad too because i wish you would have found out sooner you know yeah. and you know i think it would life would have been a little bit more because i can't i can't imagine the, the hardship you went throughout your high school and also yeah. your mom not being there which i'm sure like if she was alive she would have probably got you on it sooner you know yeah because moms that's yeah. that's moms for you right they they, they cover <laughs> your blind spot you know and, exactly. and they're always going to challenge to get you the best to get you to the best version of yourself. Um, yeah, exactly. But you're too, you're, you're a kid. You needed someone to advocate for you. After I graduated from college, um, things started to get a little bit worse again. I think one reason is because I was, I also again felt like this very, this very strong sense of aloneness, um, and also responsibility. Like before. I went to college, I was really responsible for myself. And I, I was always like having to figure out, you know, how am I gonna like, like how to take care of myself. And in college, Alhamdulillah, like, uh, you know, I had a stipend for food and um, for food and housing. So I had, it was like a little bit more comfortable. I felt like, you know, I, I still had two jobs um, on campus and off campus, but it was, it was kind of like a bubble, you know, I went to a private liberal arts school. But after college, I again started feeling like this stress of responsibility and feeling very alone. Mm. Like, um, I, I have to do it myself. I, I have no one to turn to. And during that time, my dad and I were also starting to repair our relationship. Um, not, you know, anything specific, but just you could tell in our, in our communication, our communication was softer um, and uh, just a little bit more tender. Um, but during that time, my dad was having a lot of financial struggles. And I remember sending him money and feeling very proud. But also, it was like, respons- it was like stress, responsibility. You know, I felt like... I felt like I was just responsible for for people, and um, I, looking back, I think during that time, right after college, when I started working, I was sleeping very, very little. Um, 
like maybe a few hours a night. And wow. yeah, so I wasn't sleeping. I was getting very, very little sleep during that time. And I think during that period, I, I still had roommates. I was living with roommates and I wasn't as scared as I used to be of like, the, I wasn't as scared of my home. Like when I was living in high school, I was just, I was scared of the the walls, you know? I wasn't as scared of like falling asleep, but I started to get very scared about other things. Like I would be in a group of people and it would suddenly occur to me that everybody, there was like a second conversation going on about me. So, you know, we'd be in this group, it would just, you know, be very innocuous. And then suddenly I, I would perceive that there was like this whispering going on that I couldn't quite catch or was kind of just under my radar. Mm -hmm. And I would think like, I would look at someone and, and think and be like, oh, that person just looked away from me or, or um, they're, they're plotting something against me. Mm -hmm. They're planning something. And it was just like this kind of odd moments of fear where, you know, either when I'm in a group and, and start to get this feeling that some like very foreboding you know mm -hmm. um that somebody's going to hurt me or some other situation um with something just very that that scares me or stands out to me so I think in like 2015 uh, while I'm working I start to see a new doctor because you know, I'm on private healthcare for the first time. Um, it's the first doctor that I've seen outside of uh, the my psychiatrist who helped me with my ADD medication during high school. And I went to her uh, for ADD, but she did a like a big. I guess maybe since I was a new patient, she did like a. Um, a extended intake process mm -hmm. and you know more testing and that was the first time that I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder I guess similar to my ADD diagnosis I I feel like my initial reaction was just to reject it um and even more than my ADD I think for my ADD diagnosis I was like oh yeah that I can't I can't do any of those things but I'm gonna work through it but for when she said bipolar disorder it felt like something so out of left field yeah. um I was just like, it just, it was something so foreign to me. Um, I remember I had one, one of my close friends in, in high school, her sister had bipolar disorder um, and she was like in and out of jail mm -hmm. and I didn't know much about it, but I associated it as, it just felt, it seemed very serious. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, that, that seems really serious. That's not what I'm, it's not what I'm experiencing. And I didn't really understand what it was. Like if somebody told me I depressed, I was depressed. I would I would believe them. Yeah. Um, yeah. But bipolar disorder, yeah, it just it was it was foreign. I didn't know anything about it. Around the time that I was diagnosed, and after during that year, um, I was having a really hard time getting out of bed, doing basic things, um, going to work, and I think during this time I was also, as I mentioned, getting really disillusioned about the work that I was doing. So. In early 2016, I decided to leave my job and take some time to work on something that I really cared about and pursue, you know, other projects. And one idea that had kind of gotten a hold of me by that time um, was an idea to start a clothing brand. Mm. And the thinking was, I remember 
thinking like, you know, in some ways our clothes are like, clothes are, do so much, you know, like in Islam, you know, our clothes help our, our modesty and, um, you know, help to, there's just so many ways in which we interact with clothes culturally and religiously and, and all sorts of ways. And I felt like there was an opportunity to use clothing as a way to like communicate message mm-hmm. and spread awareness and um, kind of what's the word organize people and and you know get people to care about things yeah. and get people involved in things. Yeah. So the idea was we would have a clothing brand where each collection, uh, you know how in like fashion they do like fall winter they'll do capsule collections. So our thing was going to be each collection was designed around a specific social issue. So for example like education inequality was one that we did or um redistricting like uh, like when people kind of draw voting maps for unfair advantages um and like transportation was one and it was just like thinking like this could be a way to do something really cool where you're kind of engaging people who might not otherwise be engaged on these topics. And not only that, but starting a conversation with them. I was really interested in this idea. Even talking about it now, I kind of forgot like <laughs> how excited I was at the time. But I remember like, imagine like, you know, being on the subway and you see somebody wearing a shirt and it inspires you to ask them about it. Yeah. And from there, you start a conversation about prison inequality Mm. or about you know something and it's creating these moments of connection between people Mm -hmm. which was something that was very attractive to me of how can we create moments um, or connect people in ways and new ways and meaningful ways um, outside of their usual routines or their usual circles and so I decided to take some off to pursue that take some time off to pursue this and that summer, I remember I was in Paris. It was Men's Fashion Week, um, which was like my thing because because our brand was streetwear. So like Men's Fashion Week was like the big one. And um, I think it was actually, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it was Ramadan. This is like 2016, June. Um, I remember because... I was like running around. It was so busy. There's like three, five shows a day. And, you know, like you're going to all these events. You're like, you know, planning this, meetings, blah, 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 blah. And I remember the very last day, it was like, alhamdulillah, the whole week, I had this very strong feeling. And it's a feeling that I had had in the past um, where... I was like, this is what I'm supposed, like, I'm supposed to be here. Mm. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. But not just that, it was a sense of like anticipation. Mm -hmm. Like I felt like something was about to happen, but I didn't know what. But it felt like, you know, if I just kept moving um, and like kept following this sort of like, you know, voice inside, inside my head, then I, then I would find whatever that thing is. And so I had this feeling like up all through that week and the very last day the last thing I was supposed to do that day I was meeting some friends at this show and I remember I had like <laughs> like my dates in my bag like a water bottles like already I was good it was like almost 10 p.m sun's still up um you know it was like you remember yeah. the summer fast of like it was hard. a couple years ago. It was hard. It was hard, yeah. But I didn't feel like it was hard. Like at the time I was like very, it, like it was not, 
yeah, it, it was, it was, it felt very right to me. And I was getting ready to break my fast. And I remember in that crowd, suddenly I had this realization or this moment where I was like, this is not, this is not real. This is, this is fake. And I don't say that in like, oh, you know, fashion, clothing industry, it's so fake, everyone's fake. Like, not, not that. I mean, I'd had that thought before. <laughs> um, part of the thing, you know, with my brand was like, I felt like I was, and to some part, and people will say, I don't know, people who are listening might criticize me for whatever, um, whoever I associated with, whatever I did during that time. But for me, I kind of excused it um, to myself, thinking like, well, we're trying to be in an industry that, you know, is, is very corrupt, very polluting, um, but we're trying to do something different. Mm -hmm. So that was how I justified it to myself. But it wasn't that feeling of like, you know, everyone's fake, but it was literally, I suddenly realized in that moment that this is not real. Like these, th these are not real people. Um, this is not life. <laughs> like, like the people I, I, weren't I, I, like people weren't actually real. Like you felt like you were, like in a matrix type of not real. Or it's hard to explain. Um, it 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 felt like I was very aware that everyone was pretending. And when I say everyone, it struck me that they were not human. They were something else, something other than human. Yeah. And they were pretending to be engaged in this, like facade of life. Mm -hmm but it was an illusion. Um, it was, it was fake. And I felt in that moment like, oh, I need to figure out how to get out of this. So, um, so were you in the middle of, of, a, of a show when you realized this? Were you at home? Yeah, I was in the middle. I was in the middle of a crowd. Um, it was, it was like the last thing of the day, I think, uh, like, do you know Skepta? Yes, everybody knows Skepta. Skepta yeah, <laughs> Skepta was performing. This was like 2016. Konnichiwa just came out. Mm. He was doing like this little small venue thing um, for his album. And again, like a stuff for a lot. I don't know. There's, there's going to be people who judge me. Edit this as you will. But um, yeah, it was like in the middle of people and I was looking around. I think what struck me, the reason I mention it, because to me... It, he was real, <laughs> like he was a real person. Yeah. And I had this idea or this belief that the majority of people here, the majority of people that I know, the majority of people that are like, you know, here on whatever we'll call it at that point, I, I felt like I, I didn't quite believe that it was the world, like everything in my mind, like history books, like it was all, it was all like a story, a narrative. Mm. And I felt like there are, it, it was very strong to me, this idea that the purpose of fame or the purpose of anything is to become so famous or not even famous, but to, to make an impact so big, to like shout your name. Like this was how it came. I, I perceived it. It was like the goal of anything that you do is to shout your name so loud that it sticks somewhere, mm -hmm. that it lands somewhere, mm -hmm. that the people that you love will see it, and they'll know where they'll know where you are, and they'll know how to find you. Mm -hmm. So what I was like thinking during that time, and for 
a long time after this, I mean, I don't know long, maybe weeks after this moment, I was very much had this idea that there are a few people who like work so hard, you know, just like breaking their back, working, working, clawing their way to like put their name out there because they love someone mm. and they know what love is and they are trying to find this person that they love so much and they the only way to do that like <laughs> other i'm gonna sound no I, I, you, like no i said no this is what this was I sound to, no it this was this is a belief that you had you know yeah it's yeah it's, it's what you it's what you believed it's what i believed mm -hmm. and it was like in my mind so clear that like this person that I'm watching, seeing right now, like he is trying so hard to find this person that he lost, yeah. this person that he loves. Yeah. And I was like, I, I don't even remember. Maybe I started crying. I can't remember, but I was like very moved. I was like, I see it. I see it. I see, you know, the, the effort and the work and the struggle and the hardship. And I was like, and, and I was like, I can do this too. I can do this too. If I work hard enough, if I keep working, if I keep trying, I, I will also be reunited with the ones that I love. Like that was the idea in my mind. Mm. Um, and before we go further, <laughs> I want to say, because, you know, I, I know our audience and, and I, you and I talked about mm -hmm. this before we did this podcast and we talked with Muna. I'm, I was really afraid yeah. <laughs> to talk about this. Um, and I, I am really afraid because I think what I'm sharing now and, and what I'm going to be sharing are what I now have, I guess, words and terminology For, yeah. and what my doctors describe, yeah, mm. to call hallucinations mm -hmm. and delusions and hallucinations being, you know, visual, auditory, you know, sometimes the things that I was hearing or even back in high school when I thought I was just afraid of the dark, but, and I saw these shadows moving across the room, like, you know, that, like that wasn't actually something that everyone experienced. And I feel like now I, I have these, these words for it, but, um, as I describe and even, you know, part of my fear is not so much being judged because I know like the only one whose judgment I should care about is God. <laughs> I, and that's the only one whose favor and judgment I should seek. So it's not so much that I'm afraid of being judged, but I'm, I'm very afraid of being misunderstood, um, of being called crazy. And we haven't even gotten into some of the stuff yet, but yeah, I'm very, I'm very aware and, and, and worried about this. And, and one thing that I wanted to say is, you know, because I'm Muslim and that's the framework through which I exist, a lot of times my delusional beliefs, I think, get very closely entwined with my real beliefs. Mm -hmm. So I want people to be aware of that, that like when I say these things of like I realized or I believed or I felt... I know that I, I don't want people to say that and be like, oh, wow, like that's, you're like, you know, that's wrong. Like the Quran says this, like I know. <laughs> and, and that's why it's, you know, it's, it's, yeah. You know what I'm trying to say. I want to say this out, Alex. Uh, there are things, 
that we struggle with, right? And yeah. uh, and to some people, it won't make sense. Like, whatever I might be struggling with might not be something that makes sense to somebody else. What somebody else might be struggling with not may not make sense to me because that's not my reality, right? Yeah. But these are real realities that you are having, right? And you found yourself to a, a boiling point where, you know, you couldn't even, you know, you didn't know what the words were. You couldn't label exactly what you were experiencing. And, uh, um, and subhanAllah, like, I, we, we, I had an interview, we had an interview with a sister who had OCD. And she talked about how it was inter- mm-hmm. intertwined with her faith as well. So, like, certain things, like, she couldn't do things seven times because it, it she, there, were, there were seven letters for shaitan. Mm. So they mm. they started to affect you. Got to see her 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 yeah. also her belief like her the way that she acted, you know, um, right. <clears throat> because of what she was dealing with, and so right. that's a separate. You know, those are those are valid. Those are real experiences. This is the result of also um, managing mental illness, right, and and struggling totally. with mental illness, right. <clears throat> but they don't those those things don't define you, and they don't yeah. define the kind of Muslim yeah. that you are. You know what I'm saying? They don't right. define, you know, like any anything about you and your and and how you practice your faith and your relationship with Allah Taala. Those are not indicators. Those are really tough cultural traditions that people have that are absolutely battle and they're incorrect, where they think it has something to do with your faith, you know. Mm-hmm. And those are obviously yeah. I- incorrect, <laughs> you know. And it's it's based on you know ignorance, and coffee mm-hmm. conversations like this um, bring those things to light. You know how yeah. ignorant they are, because all this all yeah. really is, subhanAllah, is is that it's, it's a hardship that was ordained for you. You know, this is a particular mm-hmm. hardship for you, um, and and it, and it was something clearly that you could overcome. You know, I, I don't know if mm-hmm. anybody else could overcome it. You know, the way that you're overcoming, it. and it's it's beautiful the way. And I want I'm just saying this to talking to you. It's it's quite remarkable the way that you overcame it, or you're over, or you're managing it, or you're exploring it. You're trying to understand yourself, what they are. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's beautiful yeah. to have somebody tell you, hey, like, this is what I know, and I'm still learning about this, and I'm still trying to find my way through. You know, but what I do know yeah. for sure is, what do you know, right, in terms of your faith? What mm-hmm. do you know about Allah? You know, what do you what do you believe? You know, yeah. um, is going to be your result that self belief. Yeah. You know, that self-belief and that tawakkil, that true, real tawakkil. So much, so you have so much tawakkil, subhanAllah, that even though you might not be able to trust yourself, you trust Allah. Yeah. You know, and that, subhanAllah, that's, that to me is like, whoa, you know? Can you, because you know, people <laughs> yeah. always say, oh, self-belief might be heavily connected to tawakkil, which it, it could be. But let's say you don't, ha- you can't believe, you can't completely, you know, have full trust in yourself because what you're struggling. Does that mean you can't have tawakkil in Allah? You know, and 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 right. those are the conversations I'm excited to have. Like, how are you? But inshallah, um, we can have those conversations. And I don't think Alex, you right. should be afraid or ashamed of talking about the real, real experience and the real hardship that you went through. You know, because Allah does not test us. Think He's not. He doesn't do it. He doesn't do us harm. You know, these are not. Yeah. These are not harmful. You know, and, and they're difficulties. You know, it's a, it's a test. But they they're yeah. not meant to destroy you. They're not meant to destroy you. You know what I'm saying? And and, and right. as a Muslim, yeah. and I don't, yeah, yeah, and I don't feel that way. Yeah. That, that's not it. I don't feel like they're meant to destroy me. Yeah, um, but I'm, yeah, uh, I'm excited. I'm so yeah, so I, so don't worry, Alex. <laughs> don't worry about those things. These are these are things that you experience, and then and then, alhamdulillah, Allah has also given you the ability to know what they were, 
You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You are, subhanAllah, like, you, you know, in your case, wallahi, like, it's so uniquely different because you're on a lot of it, you were alone. You know, you didn't have, mm-hmm. a, 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 like, your parent, your mom there to help you figure right. this out. You had to figure this out. It was really you and Allah. You know, like, that's what, that's the path to yourself. Like, you oh, walking, no, it was no. just you and Allah. You know, subhanAllah. Yeah. And it seems to me that Allah has been your greatest friend through this process. Yes. Because even even yes. though you're experiencing all this, look at you, you're still standing, you're still hopeful, you still have, you know, like, all of these things. And I know it's because, uh, because of uh, how, uh, how involved Allah is in you and how involved you are with Him. You know? Thank you for saying that. So I just yeah. want to affirm I so... you. I want to affirm you on that. <laughs> and I want you to give you confidence because, wallahi, Alex, everything you go through is just an also reflection of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's mercy. You are literally yeah. a reflection of Allah's mercy. Thank you. So don't Thank be, you for saying don't be that. Afraid. Really... No, but don't be afraid. Don't <laughs> be afraid. Be, be, tell people Inshallah. exactly what it is. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was my Khalil. He was my friend. He Inshallah. helped me through this. Even when I couldn't trust yeah. my own brain, I could trust yeah. him. Yeah, you know, I made dua before this. I was like, you know, let me speak honestly yeah. and truthfully and clearly. Um, but I'm so grateful that you said mentioned the other sister yeah. uh, who is sharing her experience yeah. with OCD. And honestly, that's why I love I love you guys. <laughs> and that's why I agreed to do this yeah. because I think for so long, like I just didn't have... I told you in Muna this, but I read a book recently um, about, you know, schizophrenia and mm-hmm. schizoaffective disorder. And it was just, I was like, what? Like maybe... This is not something. This is not something that is unique to me, and mm. this is not something that um, I, like you said, need to be ashamed about. I think a lot of times when I talk now with people about things that I'm experiencing, and they're you know like, have you talked to a sheikha and and this and that, yeah. and a lot of times I've been nervous because I'm like, you know, how will I be perceived? Like, will will they call me crazy? Mm. Will they call me, you know, possessed? Yeah. <laughs> will they? What will they think of me? Um, but yeah, you're right. I'm like, I, I hope people when they listen to this understand, like, you know, when I say these things, this, this is what I was experiencing. And thankfully now I have a lot more like language yeah. to understand yes. it. Mm-hmm. But that's, what's so difficult about this thing about you. I think what's been so the most challenging and, and we'll get into it more, you know, we're at, we're at 2016, <laughs> we still got six years. <laughs> But um, I think what's been the most challenging is is this sense of like, I can I trust the things that my mind is telling yeah, me? Yeah, yeah. And that's what's been most frightening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I, but, I want, I'm excited for you to kind of explain those layers. Um, what does it really feel like to 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 be at that point? Because I know a lot of people yeah. are might be there, you know, and yeah. and it could be in a very dark place and about to make a wrong the wrong call because of it, right. you know, because they feel so much despair. Um, and I'm excited to see how you, how you navigated that. What did you do? You know? Yeah. So like this experience that I was describing with, to you that started in Paris, um, in June lasted for a few months, Mm -hmm. um, at least, uh, because, um, in August of that year was kind of like the, um, sort of boiling point for this for this episode which you know now in retrospect my uh, I can better understand or can call like a a manic episode Mm -hmm. which typically lasts for for a while I think one of the misunderstandings that I had about bipolar disorder early on was that it was like like flip-flopping but I think in reality it's like you have extended periods of um depression or or where you're kind of in a depressive episode and extended periods of mania and this was one of my 
ones of, you know, my manic episodes. And during this time, I was also having these, this delusion that I described to you mm -hmm. that like the purpose of fame um, is to like shout your name out there. It, like yeah. it, it, what struck me was, and the way that I started to see people during that time was like, like I told you, they're not people. Mm -hmm. These are not humans. They're, not humans. It, they're something, there's something else yeah. and they are blind and they like, they, they can't see anything mm. and they want to be close to love. Like some, I, I sometimes would get these impulses or fears that like somebody was trying to take something from mm. me. I would be in a, like a conversation with someone and, and they'd be talk, we would be talking about something and I, I would suddenly get very afraid that they are about to hurt me or take something from me. And then I would think it's because they have never loved anyone before mm -hmm. and they are trying to like, they, they want that feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it kind of culminated that episode. Um, I was with my friend, you know, we were in the park, we were on like this grassy slope. There was a band playing. It was like one of those summertime things. This was August. This was back in the States. And I suddenly felt like every person there was staring at me. Like every person mm -hmm. had turned around to, to look at me mm -hmm. and I saw them, like I saw them to all turn around to look at me and like acknowledge me. And it was because they were acknowledging that like the pain or the, the struggles that I had been through. Mm -hmm. And it felt like I, I, like all this pain that I had carried and all the, the difficulty that I had gone through was being seen and being acknowledged. And mm -hmm. I felt like this idea that I had of, you know, be being one of the ones who makes it, yeah. um, who, who finds their loved one, yeah. who, who reunites with their loved one, that I could do it. I was like, this is my sign that, you know, I can do it. I can do it too. If I keep working, if I keep working hard, you know, um, I, 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 you know, I will see my mother again. Yeah. That's, that's what I felt like. SubhanAllah. I know. SubhanAllah. And I remember during that time, I started texting my cousin, my younger cousin, and I was like, Anna, I love you so much. Oh. I love you so much. If you work hard and hustle, this is what dreams are made of. Oh, wow. This is like, <laughs> oh. This is like the thing that I texted her. And I'm laughing now because since then, it's, it's not funny. Yeah. But because since then, it's kind of been like her indicator that I'm like, going through a psychotic mm -hmm. episode mm -hmm. um because since then like every a lot of times when I do I'll, I'll start like getting texting messaging her this and I'm not talking about like a couple messages I must have sent like 60 or 70. Wow and I just kept sending her this thing like and I love you so much if you work hard and hustle this is what dreams are made of and for in me and my head it was partly to like reach out to her and tell her I loved her like in that moment I was like Anna is Anna is a real like she's alive Anna is alive she's a real person mm -hmm. you have to protect her yeah. you have to protect her like your cousin like you know help her what she's doing at the time she was like you know um I think either just finishing school or just out of school college she was trying to get into film and it was you know hard for her it's like a creative yeah. field and I was like you have to help her it was like it was my way of reminding myself of like Alex like don't forget this Anna you have to there's something very important here you have to help Anna like you have to tell her you love her and then I kept sending her the address of the house that I grew up in um, you know, the house that mm -hmm. I grew up in with my mom 
and I kept texting her this address. Um, she ended up living there too. You know, her mom had immigrated to the States and, and her mom and her lived there for a few years when um, my sister and I were in Minneapolis. But I kept tell, texting her this address and I was like, we're gonna, let's meet here, let's meet here, okay? And I had this like feeling that the world was so big and that part was real. Like all of this, you know, like phones, the internet, like food, all of that was fake. But the world, like the space was real. And for me, it felt like the goal was to get back to my family. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and, and I say this is kind of like my first, I think, severe kind of break with reality. Mm -hmm. um, and nothing, nothing terrible happened. My friend was really upset mm -hmm. <laughs> because I was like nonsensical. You know, she was trying to ask me questions and, and I was not even like, it wasn't that I was trying to explain this to her. It was like I was speaking she, gibberish, like nonsense. Like, you know, no. I wasn't completing sentences. Mm -hmm. I was just spewing out words. I think there's a name for it in medical terms. But, you know, she was really frustrated with me. And, um, but that was kind of the worst of it. And but after that happened, by the end of the year, I was back in Oakland. But but I have a question. When you were going through that, was there anybody that um, wanted to get you help that realized that something was like your friend, for example, that could recognize that, that you did, something was wrong? No, no. My friend, I think she recognized something was wrong, but but she was kind of scared and, and annoyed. Mm. Um. Yeah. Uh, nobody at, Anna? Yeah, like nobody at that time. Was concerned. Yeah. I was like, was Anna concerned? <laughs> 70 messages? Yeah. yeah. My Anna was, my, my cousin was concerned for sure. But I think, you know, leading up to that point, I had had um, similar episodes before. Uh, like different, just like episodes of, you know, where, you know, I, I, I would be like maybe in college, somebody would be like, oh, you're really intense. Like, why are you so intense? Like, what are you saying? You're, you're being really intense. I can't understand you. And so I think for people who are close to me and had witnessed that and witnessed this, maybe not to such an extreme um, extent, it, it felt like it didn't feel like totally something like out of left field. It didn't feel it like a red flag. Like maybe, um, you didn't think it was a red flag. Yeah, you didn't think yeah it was a red flag. because they... Right. They saw me have like, you know, kind of episodes similar where I would get really intense or like my speech would get very, be very, very unclear. And they thought maybe like, but I was functioning because I was functioning. They thought maybe like, oh, this is just. Yeah. This is just and Alex, when you say functioning, you, know? you mean like going to work, you know, exactly. it's, you, uh, yeah. so, and that's, the, that's the interesting part, right? We always assume that somebody who's in trouble isn't working, isn't eating. Mm -hmm. um, they, you know. But in, in reality, yeah. you were doing everything what everybody else was doing, but you're still going through. Barely, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. Like, like on the surface, it looks like, you know, I, I'm living a life, but it, I, was, I was barely keeping it together. Yeah. So I think for me, you know, for other people, it might, no one, it wasn't necessarily like alarm bells were raised. And those were really the two people in my life that were impacted, the only two people in my life that were impacted by this, this specific, this particular event. But for me... I think it, f more than for them, for me, I was like, this is like, I, I, I you know, I, I went back to, when I went back to Oakland, I, I did start taking medication for bipolar disorder. And so I started taking mood stabilizers, like end of 2016. 
By the end of 2017, I was supposed to go down. I did go down. I went down to L.A. for the weekend, for Thanksgiving weekend. I was going to stay with my friend and her family. You know, they had invited me. I don't want to get too into the details of, of everything that happened, um, you know, because it, inv- it involves my friend and her family. But basically, I started to feel like... Um, I started to believe that they were going to kill me. So I was I was in this house and I was like, if I fall asleep, they're going to kill me. Um, if I if I'm you know, I, I can't fall asleep. I can't let myself fall asleep. I have to pretend like everything's okay. But you know, I have to I have to stay awake because they're they're about to kill me. Like any moment now, they're going to kill me. And I remember um, my friend went to the bathroom and I was like calling my friend. And I was like, like. Uh, you have to come get me, like, um, he, he was, like, in Oakland, I was like, mommy, you have to come get me, like, something bad is, like, I can't explain, you know, something terrible is going to happen, and I was, like, calling all these people because I was so scared, and um, I remember, you know, one night, I, when my friend fell asleep, I just, like, packed my bags together quickly, like, threw my stuff together, and, to to leave the house and I guess her mom or her dad or or maybe both were in the living room I thought they were had gone to bed but they were in the living room they're watching tv and I just rushed for the front door and they're like oh like Alex like are you okay like why aren't you asleep or you know something and I just like running away I just like ran out the door and like ran down the driveway called an uber it wasn't even there yet I was like running down the street and I just remember her mom like running out of the house and like her house slippers and she was like like what like what happened come back and I was like I was like in my mind I was like oh my god like don't stop if you stop they'll catch you and they're gonna kill you Find out next week what happens to Alex. How will this incident shape her life? Will she be able to survive the maze that her brain has created? And how has her relationship with Allah transformed through it all? This episode is brought to you by Beautiful Light Studios, recorded at MH Studios, I'd love to give a shout out to our executive producer, Mona Sheikh Umar. Ah, oh, you killed this episode, sis. I'd love to also give a shout out to our podcast intern, Nima Haroon, our recording engineer, Jonathan Lilo, our graphic designer, Sima Wasima Farah, our project manager, Yasmin Mahmoud, and last but not least, our marketing extraordinaire, Sosa Abdullahi. Thank you guys. If this podcast gave you value, we're leaving it up to you this year. Donate however much you feel like it gave to you. We have a huge team who works so many hours in bringing this show to life. If you can't give to us right now, don't worry. Keep us in your jaws. I will see you next week in your ears, in your speakers, telling you what a good story. <laughs>